This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, pivoted to home delivery during the time of COVID, just like many people, they've had to do that. And look, we love them and we think that they do absolutely incredible food, especially at their catered events. They are delectable, but you can get that at home. Why would you even bother cooking for a bunch of people at your house and the reducing number at this stage as we're on the precipice of a potential second wave? Don't bother cooking. Just order it with Bella Catering. If you're in the greater Sydney area, they'll deliver it to your house and then done. The stress of eating is sorted. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Maria. We love Bella Catering. Thank you for sponsoring all the President's Minutes throughout this entire thing. Guys, thank you for listening to all the President's Minutes and all of the One Heat Minute production shows. We have a banger of a week for you this week. Huge guests, huge minutes. Let's get to it. I have found out the American people don't realize that these Senate hearings are not spontaneous like you and I are sitting here talking. These Senate hearings are as much rehearsed as any play on, on, on Broadway. In other words, these men have uh, crews that go in, no, I shouldn't say crews, they have assistants, that go in and talk to whomever they are going to interview, and it's rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and then they put it on camera. Now, people down south don't realize that, and, and, and apparently most of the people in America don't realize that this is not a spontaneous thing, that it is just as much rehearsed as any play or any, anything could be. Now, I cannot see if it were a spontaneous operation, if they were sitting there and asking these people questions spontaneously like you and I are talking, I could see much more reason for it. Now, the American people are sick and fed up with the Watergate, and they don't want to hear about it anymore. And they have cut all of their programs off, especially down here in the South. They couldn't care less. There are only two people, I mean two cities, that are keeping this thing going, plus the press, and that's Washington and New York. And outside of Washington, New York, you don't hear about the Watergate other than when I pick up your papers down here or pick up magazines with Southern letters, people from the South that have written in letters. We're sick of the Watergate. Shut the mess up. So what? What they did in, to me in California was a heck of a lot worse than any water, uh, body breaking into Democratic headquarters. They didn't steal anything. They didn't hurt anybody. They didn't kidnap anybody. I was kidnapped. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Holy dooly, we're at episode 80 of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. Once again, I have another terrific guest, but this time, uh, this is a selfish pick, you know, one for me, one for you guys that come onto the show. Um, my selfish pick today is a terrific senior contributor to film school rejects and one perfect shot and and gives some of not only great twitter because that's how i often discover and canvas for really great new voices that i haven't had an opportunity to talk to um, as part of any one heat minute production but this particular person is a person who tweets after my own heart uh recently as recently as a few weeks ago was tweeting that the keep is like the movie from the ring where you see it you are consumed by a demon at the end of it that is the only way that if you've seen the original keep 
consistently tweets about Manhunter in a way uh, that is someone that, you know, I think, I think if I had to give them the Manhunter minute movie title, Min Hunter to almost anyone, it would be this guest. Um, and uh, I'm just uh, thrilled to get to chat to her about this movie. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Meg Shields to all the president's minutes. Hello. <laughs> it's true. I, uh, uh, I do think if you've seen The Keep and you say that you've downloaded it from iTunes, you're a liar. <laughs> no one has seen the film in a, in a way that is legal or uh, in a way that you can discern more than six pixels. <laughs> I, 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 th- I think what, what Meg is alluding to is at the beginning of this conversation, this is how sometimes you show your benefits to each other, is I showed her literally, I'm holding in my hands, a DVD <laughs> that I bought, from the, I bought from an Amazon marketplace, which was someone had put a, an either burnt a DVD from another country or burnt a, 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 the VHS onto a, a crappy DVD. Um, thank you, Iron John, um, 99, who sold this to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had this since 2008. So um, uh, an incredibly long time before you could actually purchase this thing in any legal way, which I think is only on Australian iTunes. I don't even know if it's on American iTunes. It might be on Canadian iTunes. You but- asked me if I'd seen it on iTunes and it was literally as if my memory had been wiped. I was like, I don't think I did. <laughs> the power of the keep. <laughs> you lose all sense of time and place. <laughs> oh, and, and look, it's, it's made, it's made in, oh, oh, no, this is from a Keep VHS tape in 1998. But like, you know, it's, it's just strange that at this time of science fiction movies, this thing didn't get, this didn't, you know, th- there are much weirder science fiction movies in, in the grand scheme of science fiction movies than the Keep. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. There are, there are less narratively cogent films than The Keep that are out there. <laughs> yes. But also, <laughs> The Keep never met the word narrative. <laughs> it got left on the cutting room floor, much to Michael Mann's chagrin. <laughs> no, he was I, like, please, I have a story. And the studio was like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Not when we're done with it. <laughs> here's, a, here's a sex scene. That's what we need. A sex scene, a monster. And then we're out, guys. We're taking yeah. it. He's like, what if Scott Glenn in lasers? And they're like, no, <laughs> we'll keep it for 20 seconds. <laughs> what if Scott Glenn and lasers? That's the greatest question. I will say, if anyone out there wants to properly discredit that film, the best retaliation is go, please listen to the score. It is some of Tangerine Dream's best work. It's so good. Yeah. And uh, I think um, we, we were just chatting about it before is, why you can't fully discredit it is because you don't really know what the vision is. Like that's the sucky thing. I suppose that's what, what you've seen in the contemporary sense why like modern fans have gone so absolutely frothing and crazy for like release the Snyder cut is because when they see the final version and it's pieced together and you know that it's completely a bastardized vision of what was kind of promised, there's people who are like salivating. And I feel like the keep would be like release the man cut many years ago. If it, because it's, you just know, like, uh, that old gag in, in Death Proof where Tarantino leaves reels out of the film. Like it feels like whole reels of this movie are just gone and it's incoherent as to why they're gone. And you've got all these great actors and you've got this like really ballsy vision, this incredible score. And it's like, and great tones and mood. And, but then it, none of it can be coherent because there's so much missing. There's so much that was not allowed to be shot or just never was allowed to be edited. Right. It, yeah. It just, it, that's what's but, that's, but it all like it's this happens happy like accident right where it kind of feeds into the 
like Lovecraft like does lasers part of it where it's like if you were to actually see the proper version of the keep your eyes would just melt out of your face <laughs> so it's like i don't want to see it i, I want the, the one that the, the you know copy of the film that got chewed up by a dog and they were like i don't know put it on daytime tv and <laughs> scan that shit slap it on there <laughs> uh, um, i i just I, I totally hijacked your podcast now i'm, I'm making this a keep podcast <laughs> okay it's okay what i was gonna say is i just had a brief imagining of us like tied tied like Marion and Harrison Ford style and Indiana Jones and someone opening a, a box with yes. an un, un, uncut version of the keep playing and everyone just melting away. Don't look at it. You screaming, Blake, don't look at it. Close your eyes. It's, it's not meant for human eyes. That's why there's the pixels are so big. They're trying to protect us. Oh man. So <laughs> apart from, uh, your, uh, terrific tweets of, um, Michael Mann, uh, uh, the underappreciated Michael Mann uh, films. I've asked you to watch one minute of a movie um, uh, from 1976 from one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. I think appropriately for someone who contributes to one perfect shot. Um, what was your relationship to presidents before I made you digress um, into, into the, the world of Alan J. Pakula and the world of 1976 docudrama? Um, I watched this film for the first time last week. There you go. There you go. <laughs> My my relationship with like the seventies and particularly the late seventies is with like sci-fi. Yes. Um, which is a great segue from the keep. But like I'm I'm used to like phase four and drama to strain, silent running, like that kind of stuff. Yes. Of like really, you know, uh morose, despondent, nihilistic stuff and <laughs> highly conspiratorial, very paranoid. So this was actually pretty on track. So on track. <laughs> like, not okay. I was like, oh, this is, I didn't know All the President's Men was a 70s sci-fi film. <laughs> <laughs> or all 70s sci-fi films are All the President's Men. Ah, we've reached the full Ouroboros <laughs> full circle. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, um, I think the only films from uh, the director I've seen are obviously Sophie's Choice, but like five billion years ago. And yeah. uh, that's pretty much it. Like, I, I, I'm not really a, a political... Uh, drama person and i'm not really a journalism film person um yes. not that i don't not that i don't you know enjoy enjoy a good spotlight here and there but like definitely not the lane that i've like dug eight feet deep and currently live yeah. in um and but yeah no it was super fascinating to to then jump over to a different lane and see that actually there's an entire underground tunnel system and all <laughs> all, all films are the same and <laughs> it's What's super funny about that is that I wouldn't consider myself necessarily a journalism person before kind of undertaking a uh, journalism film person until kind of undertaking this project, you know, like a, being Michael, a, a rabid Michael Mann fan. Um, I, I obviously love the insider and I feel like the insider at the time that I saw it was my gateway drug to paranoia, you know, paranoia, real life journalism, cinema back into the seventies. So like you dive back into network and you can dive back into all the president's men as that text and then parallax view and things like that. And you sort of then go through that whole like uh, labyrinthine, like, Oh, let's go through the whole of new Hollywood and go get, get super obsessive. But like, I think what, what I love um, about presidents and I think it feeds into that. It's just that, that whole air of like, massive distrust and science fiction kind of does it better. Like science fiction like puts it all out on front street, whereas something like presidents is good because it's dealing with it. But it's like, if it, if, if that distrust is around, you can feel it in science fiction. It's like, we're going to oh, totally. And, and, and there's either that 
nihilistic version where it's like everything's gone to hell and it's going to stay in hell and we're all screwed anyway or it's like that optimistic like no there was a there was a pill or something there was a pill and it fixed us and or we went to a new planet well, so, and better it's funny so as i was i was watching this film embarrassed and mortified at myself for the first time last week being like another classic that slipped through <laughs> um uh I should say, I feel like me, like maybe this is an excuse, but like being Canadian and like, I think you, you, you're not, Watergate is, is in your brain, but I think everyone's like, yeah, you know, Watergate. (laughs) And and this is what I can qualify myself. I come to this as a, as a film form fan and a fan of the narrative first. Whereas like I've had great guests on the show, like one of my mates, Sean Burns, who's been a a great, great Bostonian film critic, you know, talks about his experience of being in his house. Like his mum and dad had the transcripts from Watergate. Like, wow. They came in like quizzing him. (laughs) He said they were in his house because you could buy them and they were like phone book size things. And he says they start, they ended up being like doorstops in the house. And like, like for Aussies like me and Canadians like you, like that just, we never had that. Like, I mean, I'm sure you could probably get them in like a, a, li- a huge library, like in Sydney or something like that. But for us, but you're not going to, you know, they're not going to be easily purchased or something that was like readily available around the country. And so I think that that's, um, you know, there's a completely different lens that Watergate can just be floating out there and, and you just know that the gate suffix means that it's a something. Before- something happened. Well, so I was going to say before I, I, I have a horrible habit of in- interrupting myself, which is really, really helpful for audio <laughs> mediums. But uh, what I was going to say before I got in my own way was um, uh, having a um, loving 70s sci-fi, like you, you're right to point it out, like they always end very despondently. The system is is always too big. You can never, you know, bring it to justice. And that when I was watching the film, uh, uh, all the presidents found, I was like, well, I know this kind of ends with you know Nixon stepping down from president, so or, so that some justice was achieved. From 2020, I I don't know if it's actually that much of a happy ending because <laughs> it's it's almost like a you know a pebble in the water that then becomes a tsunami where it's just like. Uh, less of and then we fixed corruption in america <laughs> and, and more of like i think there might be some more rats in this mansion <laughs> oh, man. and and the you know uh i was really lucky i had leon nafar come on the show who did the slow burn podcast all around oh yeah 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 um and he asked me a question and i like and I, it's one for us to chew over just in that same theme he's like he is like like what do you think that he's like i can't He's like, I struggle in my head right now with one thing. Nixon could have destroyed the tapes and he didn't. And he's like, that's the thing that like, I think if Nixon doesn't destroy the tapes, the cataclysmic thing for his presidency doesn't like these guys start the ball rolling. And then once the tapes are discovered and there's all those things that like the sort of the big monumental bookending parts of this whole collapse of Nixon um, all happen sort of after the the main crux, like they find all the, the, the roads leading to him. And then he, he says that all the guys under him are lying and then the tapes prove him wrong eventually. Um, and, and I just said to him like right now in a digital world, like even for you and I recording over zoom as we're talking to one another, it's very conceivable that like I lose this recording. Like it's not impossible to happen. And I would imagine that in the Trump, in the, in the Trump world now, if there were tapes that proved undeniably and verified like political malfeasance, it, a server would go down. I'm just putting inverted commas, a oh, server sure. would go down and it's gone. And it would yeah. be, and, and they could say, Oh no, a server went down. A server went down and we lost the tapes. 
and everyone could go, yeah, whatever. But then there's no tapes. You can't find them anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, so my, uh, my non-film background is actually in records management and privacy and like, at least you can hold a tape in your hand. Right. But like when it's digital, like there's obsolescence, there's like, there's a bit rot, like there's any normal, any long list of natural things that can happen to a tape. And it's, you know, it's like you and I were, um, before we started recording, talking about how, you know, uh, you can't hold Wi-Fi in your hands. So when people describe things to you about it, you're kind of like, okay, sure. Why not? And (laughs) unfortunately that's, that's kind of the state of a lot of data management is there's very few people who actually have a good grip on it. And when the explanation isn't something that people can wrap their heads around, like you lost a piece of paper versus you lost a file, like it, it gets very scary, very fast in terms of covers, cover ups and uh, being able to have evidence. And, stuff. And, there's, and there's a whole, there's a whole industry of that. And I think there's also, you know, in records management, I've had a little bit to do with that in some day jobs around like, the the physical records management like so like once you print things out like there's like seven and four like they've extended the years of that you must keep physical records of certain transactions and things like that if you work in different companies and things like that and i think that that's like part of it because at least the benefit is that you can recall it and be like all right well show me what happened 10 years ago and you're like oh well here's at least i can get some of it at least i can get some of the records whereas like if you ask to find if you ask me to find even reviews I wrote at the, at the time that I bought this keep DVD in 2008, right. that would be really tough. Like it would be. Yeah. Tough. Well, a lot of people talk about, you know, if you put it on the internet, it'll be there forever. Mm, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, it's very ephemeral. And uh, I think the, like I rung the big records management gong that I keep on me at all times when uh, I can't remember when in the film, but uh, someone says, Oh, they, they had conversations. It wasn't, correspondence it was over the phone and that's still pretty standard practice like because it's it's there's no record of it other than there being a phone call yes um which of course is why you have to bug people (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) meg shields for bugging um i am for i'm pro bug i'm pro william friedkin's bug you heard it here first (laughs) Uh, but yeah no I, i think that that's um that whole tone of um it kind of happens in European cinema, funnily enough, like post-World War II, because like obviously the war, the fallout, like that whole existential crisis and Camus and the emergence of those sorts of texts sort of all come out at the end of World War II. Like a massive part of our population is dead. A massive part of the European continent is like scorched and, you know, just absolutely like screwed. Why the hell are we living? Like, what the hell are we doing? Like, we're just killing each other. We live, we die, whatever. And America took longer to come to terms with that prosperity. So it feels like if you look at like, if you just start in Europe and then you go to America, it's like from 45 to 70 is all some of the best and great sci-fi texts because they start to like really ponder those big questions out of wars and out of things and like out of world conflicts and, 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 and still people having those different opinions and it all starts to roll up and ladder through. And then obviously the nuclear age stuff that happens at, you know, at the culmination of world war two as well. Um, yeah, that, all that paranoia and stuff comes there. And then you see it manifest in that Vietnam moment in America and the Watergate moment. Oh, like, sure. And I, I think that like the paranoia that you're describing, I mean, uh, has, I don't even have to argue for it elements of horror to it. Like the conversation literally has like blood pooling, like, like it's, it's an extremely paranoid and horrific film. And I I think you could say the same about all the president's men. Like there were definite moments of 
like there's it's a very violent movie even though there's no violence on the screen like the the implication and the threat of violence is there at all times and and with every person every slam oh, totally threat is a threat of violence and there's one great moment for you who's a sci-fi fan and particularly a horror fan is there's a moment that's coming up in the film that i'm so dying to talk about which is <laughs> that they're, they're uh Bernstein is talking to his FBI source and they're walking around the grounds in, in sort of the center of Washington, DC. They're, they're coming up to a line of people or tourists who are going to visit the white house and um, they're having a conversation and a person in the line whips around and just takes a photo of them. And it could be a tourist, but that it's in my mind, it's not, um, <laughs> but, that, but, that, but that moment um, gives me chills even thinking about it because it is, it's in that moment where for the entire movie, they've been out in all these open spaces and those open spaces have given them a level of comfort and, you know, um, you know, confidence that they can go about talking about these things in a relatively out in the open with anonymity. And now that's not the case. As soon as that guy turns around with that camera and goes click, it's like, oh, wait, they've probably been being watched this entire time. And it's horrific from that moment on, especially when you revisit the film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, that, that moment totally stood out. And, and I think it's because it's so far back. It's so static. It's from their perspective. And your eye kind of wanders around because you've been presented with the shot a couple times. And then you notice there's this tall blonde guy pointed at them. And no, you totally, you put it, you put it perfectly. Like it, there's uh, until the moment where they realize that they're in danger when deep throat tells them they're in danger, that they've, there's a chance they've been bugged. I know that it hadn't crossed my mind, even though like the, the tension and the oppressive kind of atmosphere of it is undeniable, but then you are thinking back the way they would and go, God, what did they say? Where were they? Like that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, not nothing much more horrific than conspiracy that goes that high other than perhaps the fact that we all know that now and it doesn't <laughs> seem to matter. <laughs> We've now fully trans yeah. we're in rollerball territory now where it's like, yeah, we know it's corrupt, but we got to play rollerball. <laughs> got to have our death race. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's, that's the scary thing. Yeah. We, we've got to have running men. Like it's that, yeah, that that's got to do it. <laughs> it's, it's the, that's the levels that, um, you know, it, it was funny at the beginning of this project. Um, I was really keen to do it in this year. You know, there are other great films that I want to talk about and there are other great projects that I'd love to, you know, get people together and deep dive on in, in a variety of ways. And I was like, well, no, if, the, if I'm ever going to do this project, it should be this year. It should be the year that's an election year. It should be a year that we're talking about. And at the beginning of the project, I, I'd said a few times that like, oh, you know, it's, it's such a pressing commentary of what's happening now. And it was really funny. I spoke to Matt Zoller's lights for an upcoming episode. And Matt's like, Blake, this is a fantasy film. Like it may as well be <laughs> fiction. He's like, people don't care about anything. People aren't moral people aren't going to cross the line he goes it's a fantasy like we're not going to bring justice to this corrupt system it's it's insanity like and so i think that it's a very easy it's a very easy path to follow line to draw um and and to sort of get despondent in that way like those science fiction movies were because it's like i know well i've, I've been i've been saying since like uh for a while now that i think uh I do think 70s sci-fi is the most dangerous thing to watch during oh. 2020, just because I think like, if you really want to lean into the, 
like horrific realization that uh, large systems are largely indifferent and malicious towards everybody for their own profit and gain. Like that's what you watch. Um, <laughs> and I do. So yeah, I'm going to champion and all the president's men plus literally any 70s sci-fi double bill. Cause I think that slow dive from uh, the horrific realization that things might not be what they seem and have ill intent to the nihilistic realization of 2020 that, and none of it matters. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Just, just but, lean in. <laughs> just go. Just lean. If, if you want a real mood kicker, let's just yeah. get home with, and none of it matters. Hey, how's, yeah. that, how's that? None of it mattering for you. You'll oh. get to see James Con rollerblade. That's 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 nice. <laughs> Look, and for for folks who um, love a bit of Jimmy Khan, obviously on this oh. podcast, we're a huge fan of him. Um, there is a terrific. James Khan movie that is also an Alan J. Pakula underseen film called Comes a Horseman. Um, also stars Jane Fonda and and uh, Jason Robards. And it's about a guy who's a Vietnam vet who comes back to, to sort of be a, a rancher. Um, and uh, Jane Fonda is a rancher whose husband's died. And there's this big, mean, nasty rancher that lives in their area, played by Jason Robards, who like wants to take over, wants to marry her and 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 sort of starts messing with them because she won't give up her land to him. And it's got a lot of tones of like America's biggest, you know, network show at the moment, which is Yellowstone. Like if you watch like I watch a few episodes of Yellowstone, I'm like, this is just like comes a horseman, but longer. <laughs> um and uh so yeah, it's really terrific. So I I always try and throw in a recommendation for comes a horseman whenever Jimmy Khan comes up on the show. But look, I would love to talk to you about this minute because I've got, I haven't given you an easy task for someone who's only seen the movie for the first time. No. <laughs> uh, I've, I've given you a formidable task, but I think a great one because, you know, you as a person who loves that sort of nihilistic sci-fi and just that sort of that tone, this, um, the great Clay Keller who comes up on an episode in a few episodes time for you guys who are listening said something to me as we turned off the recording. So I want to credit Clay, which is like, Blake, <laughs> this movie looks really, you know, super authentic and bland in the newsroom. Like it looks amazing. They're big vistas, wide, beautiful wide shots of these glorious activities happening. And he's like, and then every time that the cinematographer Gordon Willis gets a chance to shoot people in spaces, it looks like a Rembrandt. Yes. It's like, it's like it's lit by one lamp and it's just this gloriously meticulously crafted light and shadow and it's just stunning and gorgeous so we're going into a rembrandt painting right now in the 80th minute of this movie where the bookkeeper played by jane alexander is eking out bit by bit information to dustin hoffman's carl bernstein it is in the segment of what is probably the the quintessential scene of the entire movie so meg thank you for joining me for this it's so oh my god my pleasure Um, so (laughs) Meg and I are going to watch it along right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and unpack it for you. After the break-in when I remembered Gordon got so much of it. This is Mr. Liddy. It's also rotten. It's getting worse. And the only one I care about is Hugh Sloan. His wife was going to leave him if he didn't stand up and do what was right. So he quit. I'm wondering if... uh... Hugh Sloan was being set up now as a fall guy for John Mitchell. What do you think? If you guys could get John Mitchell, that would be beautiful. Coffee's cold. 
Is there any evidence that uh, uh, any of Mr. Mitchell's assistants? There it is. <laughs> She's great, eh? I like Jane Alexander. Just if you can steal a scene from Dustin Hoffman, man, I like. Dustin Hoffman in 1975 as well. Exactly. You know, like it's it's the the level of the level of you know being able to to outshine you know uh, that there's that all sort of cliche but it's fun it's like that you know it's hard to shine in a in a in a team full of stars and the, there's just a roster of stars in this and she absolutely comes in and just dwarfs everyone around her and uh, she's just yeah th- th- this is also the moment of this incredible scene where she's been incredibly poised and stoic and uh, that the, the emotion starts to break through um you know i have to ask like when i firstly got you on the show i was very excited to have you on the show but when you saw what your assignment was were you uh were you happy or were you annoyed or how did you feel um so this would have been last week and i it, like i watched the scene and i went when are we and i like stopped it and looked and i went oh no <laughs> um just because i think this is like this is when the other shoe drops at least like as an audience member because i think because the dialogue is, is happening and if you're not like if you haven't been reading the Watergate transcripts, like you kind of, you're, you're feeling things more along uh, a more emotional, you know, uh, wavelength in terms of how much, uh, how their story is progressing, how much trouble they're in, that kind of thing. And I think when you see how scared she is, cause you're right, she's poised and she's stoic and she's like literally in the shadows when you meet her and comes out of them. Uh, you get a sense that there's, the stakes here aren't just someone losing their job or going to prison. Like there are some very, some like there's an actual element of violence here, I think. And you really get that in this minute when she buries her head in her hands at the like mention of Mitchell. And because I'm, you know, uh, an irresponsible idiot who doesn't know a lot about American politics, I had to like Google John Mitchell to like, whatever, get a grip. And have you talked about his wife yet? Like no. John Mitchell's wife. No. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna be honest with the listeners. I'm currently reading from the website Wikipedia.com, <laughs> but um, but uh, I'm just gonna read this paragraph because I read this and I was like, oh, this is a horror film. Like this is why I think this scene has such like it it, it resonances at this it resonances it resonates at the same frequency as that moment in most horror and sci-fi where suddenly the the scope gets blown up a little bit and the actual menace of whatever it is is revealed. And so uh, in the days immediately after the Watergate break-in, Mitchell enlisted former FBI agent Steve King to prevent his wife, Martha, from uh, learning about the break-in or contacting reporters. And while she was on the phone call with journalist Helen Thomas about the break-in, King pulled the phone cord out of the wall. Miss Mitchell was held against her will in a California hotel room and forcefully sedated by a psychiatrist after a physical struggle with five men and uh, that left her needing stitches. Nixon aides, in an effort to discredit her, told the press that she had a drinking problem. Nixon was uh, uh, was later to tell uh, David Foster uh, that Martha was a distraction to John Mitchell, such that no one minded them. Uh, was minding the store and quote if it hadn't been for Martha Mitchell there would have been no Watergate like that that's a black Christmas like uh, uh, you know uh, uh, straw dog situation of this woman suddenly being in a horror film and I think like you can taste it and sense that 
like I, I I'm I I don't know enough about the bookkeeper's real life analog to know if she knew anything about that or like even if it was just something peripheral that she knew, but I think that's the bridge to some of the actually violent things we don't get to see is her reaction when the possibility of John Mitchell facing some sort of justice gets mentioned. And and you're you're so right because um in, in Leon Nafark's great show, which we mentioned just before, Slow Burn, he dives into Martha Mitchell. Like he absolutely goes into it. So we haven't done too much on this show. Um, a couple of brief mentions, but exactly what Meg's talking about there is she, when, when they're talking about her, like maybe it's like a, a reflection in history. It's like, oh, she was, a, she was a lovely sort of raconteur, Martha Mitchell, and she would go out and she was very chatty and she would always say things that maybe she shouldn't have said because John... Well, if, you look her, if you look her up, like she looks like like a, a woman from Mars attacks. Like she's got this like enormous white, like, like drag queen hair. Like she, she looks like a, you know, a socialite, like a Washington yeah. socialite. And then you read what happened to her and you're like, I don't know. It, 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 it tells you so much about how high the stakes were, where the priorities were, who did matter and who didn't. And, and, and yeah. how much that they would do that to such an open socialite is another thing that you can see the depths of the Nixon. Exactly. It's like it, this isn't just a bookkeeper who no one knows in a Maryland suburb. Like this isn't that, that this is the wife, a high profile media wife, uh, uh, you know, being sort of taken out and, and quieted down. There's actually a, an upcoming project that stars Julia Roberts, um, as Martha Mitchell. And it's directed by Sam Esmail who did Mr. Robot. Um, he's, Mm coming to do that but based on this whole this whole shenanigans around watergate so like an adjacent uh in the same watergate universe like a marvel cinematic universe (laughs) there's enough stories to tell around all the weird and wonderful happenings on the periphery but this is a taste where you can see that there's there's a movie just on martha mitchell that is on the peripheral here but but i think what one thing that maybe didn't ring as true to me um didn't ring as true to me when I was listening to slow burn, but it definitely feels that when I watch this scene is when you hear about Martha Mitchell here and John Mitchell and how bad he is, you realize how complicity is with Nixon to do that to his own wife. Whereas in the other story, it was more like he might've been pressured by Nixon and external forces to keep her quiet. Whereas like in this scene, where she's like, if you could get John Mitchell, that would be wonderful. I'm like, well, he's an asshole. Like he's a bad guy. I think why I was thinking about, Martha or, or ended up falling down a rabbit hole that wound up at Martha was, uh, you know, the bookkeeper has just talked about Sloan who, you know, his relationship with his wife is very different where yeah. she said, you need to, uh, you know, you need to get out or I'm out. And he, his priority was to his pregnant wife, not yeah. to, you know, Nixon. have his, have his wife kidnapped and beaten and silenced and gaslit. So <laughs> um, it's funny that, you know, these two women aren't, are, are, are in the scene and not in the scene and being talked around, but, but are so f- uh, forward in my mind when I watch this minute um, and how the bookkeeper is kind of bringing them into the spotlight, even though they're not there, especially Martha. But yeah, but yeah, the, the line, um, it's all so rotten and and it's getting worse. I must have said that like 800 times since March. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know. Also <laughs> rotten and it's getting worse. Also rotten and it's getting worse. Yeah, it's, it's um, it, all around the world. I think you've seen some countries that have been able to be resilient and find some solidarity in a pandemic, you know, because there's always that thing. It's that, it's that lie 
you get told when you read the Watchmen uh, of like, um, and which is what's so fun about the new Watchmen series is like, oh, with a common enemy, the world will rally together. We'll band together. Well, especially, you know, a non-human enemy will unite us. It's like, no. <laughs> uh, in fact, it, it you know, then, then, it's then, all rotten. It's getting worse. <laughs> I, I also think I, I'm just like, I've also done the Kent Brockman hail ants. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yes, like, yes, that, yes. that feels like the whole of Fox news or whatever in the States. It's just like hail ants. It's like, God damn it. Like, yeah. Can we agree factually that the disease is not good for everyone? Um, yeah, it's just one of those things where, and, and that's, it's also a comfort and it's also an infuriating comfort now as we progress through the year of you have this thing, this, that people could agree that along, maybe not along political lines, but on moral lines that lying to people and spying on people is bad. Like lying to the American public, spying, <laughs> spying, spying on your political opponents, and then especially lying to them. The lie is actually almost the, the thing that's worse. And then attempting to cover it up, all those things are bad. It was like, yeah. Whereas I feel like you know, the a couple of times it's been said, but the guy who had the we grab him by the pussy tape was like, this is my Watergate. Yes, yeah. Pussygate. It's over. Like it's done. And I did it. I solved the problem. <laughs> I solved it. And then it's nope. No, it's, yeah. it's it's rotten and it's getting worse. <laughs> but yeah, back to the um uh the uh the women. Uh, I do uh, and the fact that they're they're being kind of brought into it surreptitiously. Perhaps I'm arguing over for this, but uh, it really underlined the like mafia nature of all of this. Which like it's it doesn't even need to be said. It's that you know at some point when you get uh high up enough in positions of power usually things start looking very mobbish and and mafia like and i do think the it reminded me a lot of her like thinking about martha and her being silenced and gaslit i was like oh you know like like the mafia (laughs) like (laughs) like uh yeah no and uh uh yeah, the whole the whole um, stereotype of chatty women being silenced and stuff made me it it well, a further I mean, a further notch in the tree of of just how this film exposes the kind of uh, mafia like you know mirror image that sometimes the U.S. government presents us with. And also, uh, I think it's the w- women are like the moral center of this whole movie. Like so the, the the you know although although our two leading characters are men and you know it's a lot of the editors are men like the journalists and the, the women that are seeing like seeing and probably being ignored largely by their mobbish bosses are very observant to what's happening and also have the moral compass to actually, and, and, and forgive, forgive the crassness, but like they've got the balls to actually say what's happening and to reveal it and, and to absolutely to their detriment, number one, you know, their career, number two, to the potential for them to, uh, you know, uh, to, to be safe because obviously the threat for women is, you know, it's like you guys live on a different planet in, in that respect. You know, um, my, my best friend, Maria Lewis, who's a great author and she's been on the show a couple of times. She hates me because I she was staying with us for a few months and she said, like, I said, I'm just going for a run. It was at night. And she's like, you run, at, <laughs> does you run at night. I'm like, yeah. And she's yeah, like, of course. Like, she's like, that, you are such a man right now. I'm like, I even run at night and, and, and I was researching a future project. I'm like, I was running and listening to Zodiac 
Robert Graysmith's novel in my headphones while I was running. So I'm listening to the thing about serial killers while I'm running at night. And she's like, local man found dead listening to Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I thought I was going to become my own headline. But, <laughs> but, that, but that, that's the, the, the thing that like these women are, uh, and especially Jane Alexander's character, but mm. also, also Lindsay Krauss's characters, like these characters are putting themselves and their reputations at risk that are ultimately helping to prop up these stories and, and be huge influential figures in it and be the moral compass in this world where like they've been discounted, but they are, they're the gatekeepers because like you said, the guys in this boys club, this mobbish gang, as they get higher and higher up, they, they kind of like, there's this cycle of circle of protection. They can kind of keep each other quiet. The chink But you wouldn't know anything about that these days, right? <laughs> it's, but that's, you know, that's, that's what's so frustrating is because you're like, Oh my God, this is just, it, it, it's, it's now beyond really, it's, it's the thing you could at least say with Nixon and all of his cronies is like, at least they pretended to be articulate. Like, sorry, they pretended a great game. Like they were, put, they were, put, they were articulate. You know, they did, they did, uh, you know, they could put both shoes on in the morning. They on. like could buckle their belts. Like, like they, there was speaking complete sentences. Except for foreign d- diplomacy. There was like, um, you know, I said it a couple of times on the show, but like Nixon uh, doing the Apollo 11 speech mm, about like yes. hum- human, human innovation and, you know, inspirational things about solidarity in the world and coming together and things like that. And it's just like, none of that is possible now with this current administration. The, the guy can't, I, I, I could read a Nixon transcript. I couldn't, I can barely take three minutes of a press conference. Like I, it took me the, the famous Axios interview with the great um, Australian reporter, Jonathan Swan. Um, mm. I couldn't get through that in one sitting. I had to watch it over about nine days. Like I was just like, I can take three minutes. You're like, why am I being speech speech jam trying to listen to this thing? (laughs) Which is like, I can't, I mean, and that wasn't any disrespect to him. It was just that it was watching someone vamp around in circles and talk absolute nonsense. And my brain just can't cope with it. I don't don't know about you. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Um, But uh, let's let's get back to Jane because this is so great. And it's good. And, and the, she's so wonderful. And, and I think that, it's another great technique for Bernstein here because he he's a guy who's not great with emotion, just as it is. And, and do you, when you say that, I want clarification because to me, he's so emotional. Like, I think he's... Oh, he's, he's so emotional, hyper Like, such a baby. Like, can't keep it in, which, of course, we stand very hard. Like, great. <laughs> I, like, do, I do want to, like, double bill this with Ishtar in the future because I'm like, that's, that's the double bill. It's like <laughs> the Dustin Hoffman with himbo double bill. <laughs> it's oh like this. <laughs> I have to write that down. Um, <laughs> but, but that's a – he's so he's, – he's usually so forthright and he wears his emotions on his sleeve. And in this particular scene, he's doing everything to repress his yeah. natural instincts in order to just – try and provide her uh, like a canvas to just bounce off of like, you know, like those people who are great listeners ultimately can just be comfortable in silences a lot of the time. And, and so for him, I love, there's a moment in this scene and I don't know if it's a happy accident or by design when he drinks the coffee and he's like, the coffee's cold. I know that I, I laughed out loud. Like I, it's so funny. It's so funny because it's, he doesn't know what to do with the emotion. And also he's like, he can't, he doesn't want to wallow in it. 
and it's doing the great functional thing of like telling you that time has passed because obviously we've now moved through. Yes. Well, and he's a smoker, right? So he, he needs something to do with his hands. Yes. All the time. Well, and, and, and the great, like, um, the great reveal later that that was the first cup of, of 20 cups of coffee <laughs> and that, uh, time is slipping away from him as he's like stumbling and tripping over words and like really trying to win the Oscar of like, oh, I don't know, like, do you think this guy was a fall guy? Like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's, no. it's, it's, that's, that's one thing I love about this moment because I feel like in that emotion, um, it feels like the, the Bernstein we've seen and the Hoffman we've seen for so much of this movie is ready to be like, well, like, let's get him. You know, like yeah, exactly, it, and he's like the only way he can channel that information is like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'll have more coffee. <laughs> I mean, I've solved my problems that way before. I can't, I can't complain. I can't plenty, throw stones. <laughs> there's been plenty of times, like you're in a meeting and you hear someone say something, and you're like, "This is absolute nonsense," and you're like, "Mm-hmm." Just, uh, just take another sip. Just take another. What if I vibrate out of my chair instead? <laughs> yeah, no, it's so funny because I mean. Uh, Alexander's in a horror movie, right? Like she's not blinking. It's it's an extremely claustrophobic frame. Like she's uh, breaking it down in front of us. And meanwhile, Hoffman does look like he's going to vibrate out of his seat because he's so excited that he finally got someone to talk. Because we've just seen, you know, a good montage of how they've just been coming up against a brick wall, and finally they've got. He's been able to to catch someone to to talk. But and and, and that yeah, no it. it Oh no, I was just going to say, and that moment too of, um, it's great to see it played and, you know, the people are going to relish it in like the upcoming minutes is to see how he actually gets to sort of claim how much joy he had when he heard her say, if you could get John Mitchell, yes. that would be wonderful. So like, it's so, that's such a like process art thing of like, he gets to repeat to someone and tell them how much he loved that moment because in so many other ways, you know, it's many other ones. He has to like keep that cool and close to the chest, and like, oh, the coffee's cold. Like, oh, it's just we're just we're just having a conversation. We're not going to get too emotional here or whatever. You, however, you want to read it, but um, yeah, I love that he then has to go to like he goes straight to Woodward. And he's like, oh my God, she said this. Yeah, no, just a smash cut of like we got one. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, totally. It's it's very like uh, you know, unblinking, obviously terrified, near tears, Alexander to like the elation of Hoffman that that the possibility of justice is is within their grasp when you know and then and then the coda of the narrator going except like, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all they're only initials and we need to figure out how to do this again it's yeah, so, except for it's rotten <laughs> it's just all it's, it's all rotten it's all rotten. <laughs> it's, it's, you just, you need the, it's all rotten exclamation after Ben Bradley gives him the speech about, you know, how important their work is and that it's going to yes. help the, the constitution and maybe the future of the country. And you're like, but it's all rotten, Ben. It's all rotten. It doesn't matter anymore. Bradley, honestly, the MVP for me in this movie, that scene on his front lawn, I was just like, this guy rules. Like, Mason Robot. Uh, so- yeah. Yeah. That minute. Can't wait for y'all to gush about him knocking it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, he's there's there are other great, you know, there are other great Bradley scenes coming up. I can't decide. Robards is so good. He's so good in almost like every way in this movie, whether it's you know, you hear cool stories like these are the apocryphal tales that I love. It's like every day he was on set, even when he wasn't shooting, just sitting in Bradley's office reading the paper, reading books, <sighs> drinking coffee. 
Dude, that's such a good bit. Like, I think that's hilarious. Like, of course you'd do that. Of course. Like, and, and it's like, it's, you don't ever know if it's true and I don't care. Like, but, it, yeah, but exactly. But it's like, I, I love thinking about it now because I'm like, he was there. He was like, yeah, this is what he would do. He would be here on set. Like, I'm not going to just sit in my trailer. I'll be here on set every day while everyone's shooting because the editor, you know, the executive editor would be there on the set every single day doing this. And, um, and so there's so much of the movie that I love. Like there's the, you know, the, you know, I've got a house and a dog and a wife and a cat, you know, whatever he says, you know, a house and a wife and a dog and a cat. And like, and then he repeats it back to him. I, I, I love that moment. Um, I, yeah, he's, you know, even just something as simple as like, fuck it, we'll stand by the boys. Like yes. I just like, that is. Do you need to get that tattooed? Cause they're, <laughs> yeah. Fuck okay. it, I'll stand by the boys is, is a good Twitter mantra for anybody. Like, I think I'm, I'm changing in too deep bio. now. <laughs> I think I'm changing my bio today. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, the other thing about Bradley, like just in relation to this minute is, uh, uh, in that this minute is, you know, um, a grim kind of death, death knoll for uh, not being able to trust anyone higher up. It is nice that Bradley isn't corrupt, that like we do have an authority figure with like a level of integrity, like who can be trusted, who does at the end of the day want what's right for truth and justice, et cetera. Uh, when we have like. That's another tattoo for you, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> justice, yes. et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. <laughs> truth, justice, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's the one thing, you know, when we talk about journalists and movies, you know, things that I've eventually as part of this project had to dive down, like nothing infuriates me more than the, like the caricaturish editor. Who's just a, an idiot, like an editor has no integrity and in nothing. Like, cause it just feels like, Oh, there's your arch villain. Like you're just making an arch villain out of nothing. Like, well, do you find that in, um, the insider? Cause I mean, the insider, you know, rhymes with this movie in some ways. Uh, and you do have higher up journalistic folks who, you know, are maybe they're not putting truth right in the right spot in their priority yeah. ladder. No, I, 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 why I love, why I think it's more appropriate is that when you get to the top of the editorial letter in the insider, it's a corporate, it's a suit, sure. it's a corporate. And so that rings true to me of like, Oh, of course, of <laughs> fucking course a suit is not going to care. Cause the bottom line is shareholder, their pocket, no risk. And so that, that comes with its own, like a, a morality, lack of ethics. Like, it, you know, it's sort of like, I mean like social ethics around what they do. It's just like, is this going to be too much of a risk for us? And they're like, is the juice worth the squeeze it has nothing to do with morality or whether the American people should be hearing it. It's more about whether we can be protected. So I love that. Yes. And I, because then also you have a hero like Lowell Bergman, who's at the, in the middle, who's just up, fucking bulldog antagonist who's just like well i'll just tell everyone i'll tell the new york times i'll tell it like he's like he's just spilling mm-hmm. the beans to everyone going we're not brave we're not out and like someone as ballsy as Lowell bergman's like and also i quit see ya like i'm out if you guys don't work anymore um so it has its own nihilistic tones as well which is great like that's that's why it that's why the insider plays like you can put the insider with the conversation. You can put the insider with blow up. You can put the insider with any of these political, uh, you know, network because it's just like rather than government interference and malfeasance and the news entanglement with corporate, which network sort of does like a Nostradamus prediction about and yes. the insiders like, Oh no, they were right. And look exactly <laughs> as they said that was going to happen is going to happen because it's the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and it's wearing the biggest pants in the world. I and, love and, like the I've I want as soon as I mention the insider, I just get like a like a prophetic vision of uh Pacino and Crow just standing on that lawn in their like billowy pants and I'm oh. like I, t- I tell you what, it's, you're you know, talking about Rembrandt's. That's that's my my every frame of painting. Where I'm like, I would like that framed, please. <laughs> it, it's it's it was so good to watch uh, the Last Dance, the uh, the Chicago Bulls documentary, to see the same uh, cuts of ninety suits from the Insider, where everyone, yes. not a single suit fits a man. Everything is yes, just exactly. A suit well, you watch a film like All the President's Men, and you look at Robert Redford's pants, and you go, "Those are pants." And you look at Hoffman's pants, you're like, "I get it." Like that's a pant and then you watch the insider and you're like uh that's a sail for a boat that you've fashioned into a garment oh i love the are you gonna, are you gonna escape I, in those pants like, i love it i get it it's a pant it's a pant <laughs> oh, oh your honor i'll allow it i'll allow it i'll allow that pant. your honor objection those are not pants <laughs> this man cannot proceed with his uh, investigation of the tobacco industry uh, he's not wearing pants <laughs> he's, he's clearly not wearing pants uh no. and, and he should have been fired because he was not wearing appropriately well, i'm pretty sure that journalistic integrity and pant fit are related <laughs> it's one-to-one um, it's one-to-one it is one-to-one i don't know if we're going to get better than that than that quote <laughs> for this this episode meg you have been a treat to talk to thank you so uh, thanks bud <laughs> thank you so much for coming onto the show it's been a really fun combo and i think that um diving down the martha mitchell of it all is always uh, a really stark um uh, a really stark and essential um part that i was i was looking forward to and when i gave you the minute i was like this this should be fun um no matter no matter how dark it eventually gets i think we'll have some fun uh, but uh please tell people where they can find your deeply entertaining uh, uh, um, and uh, and where um, they can find you elsewhere. Obviously, uh, uh, film, film School Rejects, um, uh, Cinemascope uh, as well, One Perfect Shot. Where else can they find you? Uh, pretty much that and on Twitter uh, at uh, The Worst Nun, uh, where I can't promise you a lot, but I can promise standing the keep on the regular. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And, and also standing the fit of different pants and men and... Bless your good work. Um, it's How could a- I talk about pants and not talk about William Peterson and uh, To Live and Die in L.A.? Those pants defy gravity and physics. <laughs> now, look, my favorite pants in cinema are J- <laughs> James Kahn and Tuesday World walking along the beach in Thief. There are no oh, better... Very- hell yeah. His, his bow legs and those pants, there's literally no better worn pants, um, except for maybe Robert Redford in this movie because he makes men like me want to explore corduroy. And that You're is- You're like, what if I bought a corduroy suit? Would, any, would anyone <laughs> stop me? <laughs> would, I, would I become more powerful? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the, that's, that's the question I'm going to leave everyone with. (laughs) That was my incredible guest, Meg Shields. You can find her at filmschoolrejects.com where she's a senior contributor. But if you just want to get in touch with Meg and just read her incredible uh, Twitter, it is, is some of the best Twitter that's going around. You can find her at the worst nun on Twitter at the worst nun. That's right. Um, Look, uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to this first episode of All the President's Minutes for this week. As you would have seen, we dropped a lost episode of Miami Nice, and there's some more news about the evolution of that show. I really would recommend you listening to it. It was a banger of an episode at the time that we recorded it, but I think it's all the more important contextualized with Katie's introduction at the beginning. Thank you so much for 
listening to any of the One Heat Minute production shows, whether that's Increment Vice, whether that's Miami Nice, whether that's back to the classic, the OG One Heat Minute or all the President's Minutes. If you want to support us, go to Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute and you can find our new Patreon with a brand new weekly podcast, Rum and Rant. All the links of that are going to be in the description and a donation link for the show if you just want to sponsor us like that. Otherwise, share rate, review. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes again. First episode of the week. We have four coming to you this week that you're listening. This one is dropping on the 18th of August Australian time, but we have four big ones coming. Thanks so much for listening.